are in week number six of our hashtag struggle series. Uh, I said first experience, if you are over the age of 40, maybe you read it pound sign uh, struggle series, but we are talking about, some of you are like, don't make fun of me because that's what I thought. And so we're talking about uh, how to follow God in the midst of a selfie-centered world that I would argue uh, by and large that we are a generation and a society that we are, we're really infatuated with us, right? Like if I go to a restaurant and the majority of people's faces look like a phone in front of their face because they're taking a picture of themselves. And then we've also created a word that we've added to the dictionary, which is a picture of our self. It's called a selfie. And now there's an ussy. And now there's, I, literally I can't even keep track of it all. It's kind of ridiculous. But uh, we are a culture that is very interested in ourselves. And sometimes that makes it difficult to focus our lives around Christ. And so that's what we've been talking about. Today I want to talk to you about Confidence. I, I titled the message Rescuing Confidence. Maybe you're here with me uh, live, maybe you're watching online or at Plymouth Meeting in Limerick, and you would say, I really want to do something, something great for God. I, I would love to be a part of something really great, but I just don't feel like I measure up. I don't feel like I have what it takes. I feel like God would probably be better off picking somebody else who's a lot better than I am. Maybe some of us. Uh, we struggle with insecurity. Uh, maybe the fact that I just said the word insecurity made you a little bit insecure about this morning. You don't got to raise your hand. And so we're going to be talking about how I believe uh, God used a man named Gideon uh, in the Bible to do something extraordinary, even though he felt this exact same way. We're going to read in a second. Uh, but God asked him to do something really big, and he says, you should probably pick somebody else. I'm the worst person for this job. And so we're going to be in the book of Judges. If you're not familiar with the Bible, it's split into two halves. There's an Old Testament uh, and there's a New Testament. The Old Testament is the first half. Uh, it talks about God uh, and kind of the people of God. It's called the nation of Israel. Uh, and then the New Testament talks about a man named Jesus, uh, who we actually measure our time based off of now, A.D. and B.C., uh, completely flipped the world upside down in 33 years. And so uh, that's kind of the two halves of the Bible. We're going to be in the Old Testament today. Uh, and if I were to describe the, the nation of Israel in one word, uh, it would probably be dummies. I will just be real with you. D like, and let's, let's kind of put it into context. If anybody was looking at your life from like thousands of years later, they'd probably also be like, dummy, right? And so like <laughs> hindsight is twenty twenty. But I would say here's what happens with the nation of Israel. God does something great for them. They forget about it. And then they do something dumb. Any of y'all ever been there before? Like God does something great. They forget about it, and they do something dumb. Like, it's just over and over and over again. Like, repeat the process. It almost to the point gets, I think when I'm, you're reading the Old Testament, you go, really, we're doing this again? Like, yeah, there's something great for you. You forgot about it, and now you're doing something dumb again. And so uh, where we're going to find our story is right on that last step. They've done something, something dumb, right? And so we're going to talk about how God, he begins to do something great for them through a man named Gideon. And so if you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be reading in a minute in the book uh, of Judges, basically what's happened is uh, God has set the people of Israel free from the world's largest superpower. It would have been Egypt at the time. Uh, they were uh, a million people, two million people strong, something like that, and God sets them free from them uh, through nothing short of a, a miracle. He, he takes them through a giant river. The river splits. Maybe you've, you know, Moses, right? You've seen that movie or whatever. It splits. They walk through. The river comes through. It destroys Egypt. Uh, Israel is, is safe and free. And so our story takes place just 
just after that, they've kind of settled in the land that God has for them. They started to build a name for themselves. Uh, and instead of continuing to worship God, they have decided it would be a good idea uh, to take a piece of wood and carve something out of it and like, put it on a big pole and worship that instead. Logical, right? And so that's what they've decided to do. And what we find is that God says, okay, nation of Israel, you, you would prefer to worship that, the, the piece of wood that you have right there. Go ahead. Let's see how it turns out for you. Like maybe you have kids here and you've kind of felt the similar way. Uh, like I'll tell my daughter, don't uh, smash your head on that wall. It seems reasonable to me. Don't, like, don't do that because it's going to hurt. And then so I try to stop her and she gets mad at me for stopping her I'm smashing her head into the wall. Are you following me? And so I say, you know what? Go ahead. Let's see how this turns out for you. And you know how the story ends. She smashes her head on the wall. She's crying. And so, like, that's where the nation... Don't look at me like I'm a bad parent. You've been there. And so, like, that's where the nation of Israel is. Like, they, they are about to do something really dumb, continuing in worshiping this piece of wood. And God says, you know what? If you want so badly to abandon me and do this instead, then go ahead. He leads them. And what happens is... The eastern armies that surround them, it's called the Midianites, uh, they begin to completely destroy Israel. God is no longer with them. He has left them to their own devices, and the Midianites begin to come in. It says that they steal their crops. It says right at harvest, they come in and steal their crops. It says that they kill all of their livestock. It says that they destroy all their land so that they can't farm anymore anyways. And that's where we find the hero of our story, Gideon, uh, right in the thick of that. And so we're going to read. Uh, it's going to be up on the screen. You can read along in your bulletin as well. In Judges 6, verse 11, it says this, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak and Ophir that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Okay, so where we find our hero of the story uh, to begin with is he is a coward who is hiding in a wine press trying to keep the Midianites from stealing his food. Right? Like, can you picture this? He's, he's, he's cowering. He's terrified. The Midianites are about to come in, and he's hiding in the midst of this wine press. And then it says this. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I always imagine Gideon kind of going like this. Me? Me? My, my, mighty? I'm literally, I'm hiding my food right now. Like, that, that, that is the tension of what is happening. Verse 13 says this, pardon me, my Lord Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all of this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's so interesting that when we walk away from God, our first instinct is to say, God, why have you abandoned me? It says this, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength that you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family, the Lord answered. I will be with you, and you will strike down all of the Midianites, leaving none alive. So recap, the Midianites, they're completely destroying the Israelites. God's solution for this is this tiny little man who's the least in his clan, who's the least in, uh, of his family, whose clan, actually, it won't tell you, is the least in Israel. He's literally the worst option Ever. And so if you've ever felt like I am not equipped to do what God has called me to do, hopefully this provides you with some perspective and some hope. And the angel comes to him and he says, I'm going to use you to completely wipe out the Midianites. Fast forward a couple more verses. It says in Judges 6, 25 to 27, the same night the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one that's seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of it. 
Okay, so the angel comes to him. He says, you are going to save the Midianites, uh, save the Israelites from the Midianites. The first thing I want you to do is go to your dad's property and cut down his most important possession, burn it, and then build another altar on top of it. This would be like me, after my dad bought his new truck, going and burning it down and putting my truck in its place. Right? Like, this was incredibly important to them. This is everything that they had wrapped their identity in. This is everything that they had given up God for. It says Gideon does it. It says Gideon takes 10 of his men. It says in the dark of night they go, they cut down the Asherah pole, they build a new type of altar on top of it to God. And so as this happens, we're not going to read all the verses because there's a ton of them, uh, and you will end up falling asleep. And so I just recognize that. I'm going to just sum it up for you, right? Any of you ever read a book for, for school or whatever, and you're like, I'm going to just... I'm going to just Google this and read, right, the spark notes. So this is the spark notes for this story. What happens is he begins to summon an army around himself. It says ultimately he ends up summoning 32,000 people around him to begin to attack the Midianites. And we think this is where the story gets awesome, right? Like I'm, I picture, just personally, the movie 300, right? And so Gideon is obviously he's Gerard Butler. And so he's like, we're about to take them on, right? And so... Uh, kind of maybe to put it into perspective, you, you don't know this, but 32,000 people was their army. Uh, the army they were up against was 135,000. Um, and so already we're a quarter of the way to having enough to fight this army. And it says in Judges 7, 2 to 3, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. That's right there. You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. Announce to the army anyone who trembles with fear may turn back. And it says that 22,000 men leave and 10,000 remain. Okay, so we got 32,000 versus 135,000. Gideon says, if any of you guys are scared, go home. Probably thinking, all right, probably not many people are going to go home. Two-thirds of the army go home. And so when you're doing something great for God, don't be surprised when two-thirds of people are afraid and they leave. It says he's left with 10,000 men. I can't make this up. This is the next verse. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Too many. He didn't say not enough. I had to read that again. He says, take them down to the water. I will thin them out for you there. He says, whoever kneels with cupped hands will go with you. Whoever laps like dogs will stay. And so 300 men, they kneel, and they sip out of their hands. And he says, with those 300 men, I will deliver Midian into your hands. All right, so let's recap all of this math. 32,000, 135,000. This one goes down to 10,000. Still... 135,000. This goes down to 300. Still 135,000 verse them. Like, are you following what's happening? If I'm getting it, I'm going, I did not sign up for this. Like, I was almost there, and then you took all my people away. And so it says in the verses to come that they march towards the Midianite camp. It says that with one hand they have a trumpet, with another hand they have a covered lantern. It says at just the right moment that they uncover the lanterns, that they blow the trumpets, and the Bible says that the Lord confuses the Midianites so that they turn on each other and they kill each other. It's like straight out of a movie, right? I'm ready for them to make this movie. It sounds awesome. They turn on each other and they kill each other. But that's not the end of the story. It says that the kings, they take 15,000 men with them and they flee. Now the kings would have taken the strongest men with them to protect themselves, and so they're fleeing as far as the Jordan River. And we'll find that Gideon, he doesn't give up after defeating 120,000 men. Uh, the Bible said that the angel called him to defeat all of the Midianites. And so it says that he pursues them continually. If I'm Gideon, I'm probably thinking, man, I had a really good trick up my sleeve back there with the whole lantern trumpet thing. But I got nothing for this other 15,000 and their kings. 
It says that he pursues them and completely wipes them out. God knew that had he not done that, that they would have regrouped, gone back to their camp, and destroyed the Israelites completely. And so this entire story is wrapped up in the idea that there's a man who is not confident in himself. In fact, he is anything but confident in himself, and God does something completely ridiculous and extraordinary through his life. And so I want to talk about three things that I believe that Gideon learned in order to develop confidence in Christ. The first one is this. I think in order to develop confidence, we need to stay obedient. Uh, I told you I have a daughter. Uh, she's about a year and a half old. It's always fun learning and, and kind of watching her develop and her, you know, her wheels are turning. She, she understands the word no, uh, which is like a whole mess in and of itself. And so she's starting to really understand how things work. And the funniest thing is she knows when she does something wrong. Uh, like, for example, uh, when she tries to eat batteries. Um, don't look at me like that. Like, she, she crawls onto the couch, she takes the remote off, takes the back off the remote, smashes the remote on the ground, takes the battery, crawls into the bedroom, you know, the whole, the whole deal. And so uh, the other day I was, I was doing the dishes and I noticed it got really quiet in my house. And if you have kids you know when it gets quiet, something is about to go down. And so I was like, I wonder where Ellie is right now. And so I walk you know, over to the bedroom, and I see her huddled kind of like over uh, the bed like this, hiding something, and I'm like, well, this is not good. And so all I did was say, Ellie, right? And so she goes... <laughs> and I kid you not, the next second she just starts bawling. I'm like, I ha don't awe oh, me. She's trying to eat a battery, all right? I'm trying to protect her. And she just starts, she starts crying right away. I haven't even said, like, don't eat that battery yet, which is, like, completely reasonable to tell an 18-month-old baby. And so she just starts crying. Why? Because she knows she's doing what she's not supposed to do. I've told her this before. Batteries are not for eating. Batteries power the remote so that we can watch television, right? And, you know, other things that batteries are for. And so... Uh, the other thing is interesting that she, she is also incredibly confident when she begins to do what she's supposed to do. Like, for example, uh, I explained to her uh, that I was making pancakes for breakfast uh, the other day. You know, spent all this time making the stuff, and if you know anything about me, I'm not great at cooking, so pancakes is about the extent of what I can do in that area. Um, and so I made her pancakes. I was like, we're going to have a good breakfast. Uh, you know, I, I laid it all out. I cut it up into bite-sized pieces, whatever, put it in front of her. Uh, she decided that she did not want pancakes this morning, and uh, in fact, how dare I put pancakes in front of her? And so she's losing it, this huge fit. And finally, uh, I just try to have a heart to heart with her. Honey, I cannot afford to buy a new type of food for every hour on the hour that you decide you don't like what I tried to feed you yesterday. You liked it fine yesterday. And so finally, she comes around and she starts eating her pancake. And what's the first thing she does? Well, first of all, she gets a giant smile on her face, right? And then she starts clapping for herself. Way to go, Ellie. You really toughed it out there and ate that pancake. And she only knows four words. She knows mommy, which means get me something now. She knows dada, which is just her name for every human on the planet. Uh, she knows uh-oh, which means I've dropped something and you better get it for me right away. And first and the third are kind of similar. And, and the last phrase that she knows is good girl. And so she starts, good girl. Good, I'm, I'm awesome. I ate that pancake, right? Like she, she becomes so much more confident when she knows what she's doing is what daddy has asked her to do. I think a similar thing happens with Gideon. That God calls him to do something great, but the first thing is not to amass an army. The first thing is not to make sure you have the weapons. The first thing was not uh, to draw out a battle plan. The first thing was to go and burn down his father's idol that would have been his most prized possession. 
And many times God calls us to something great, but the very first step is to be obedient in what he's called us to right now. And I believe that as Gideon begins to be obedient and he begins to see God work things out in his life, that all of a sudden confidence begins to build in his spirit. That I wish that there was a secret. I wish that there was a trick. I wish there was a way I could tell you if, if you just think this way or you just feel this way that you'll be confident. But the truth is confidence is caused by obedience. Confidence is always caused by obedience. Listen to a couple scriptures of people who were confident in Christ. In Psalm 27, 3, it says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Notice that it's not in the midst of, of him saying, Though I sit in a field completely unharmed and away from, from any type of danger, I'm going to trust in God. Notice it's not, Because everybody around me is telling me that I'm good, I'm going to be confident. Though in the midst of war... I will be confident. In Hebrews 13, 6, it says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? These people had the courage and the ability to say things like this because they had first stepped out in obedience. That maybe you're here and you'd say, I often find my circumstances in the approval of others. Can I just tell you, if your confidence is in likes, it's not sustainable. Your confidence in Christ, it will be sustainable. Maybe you're here and you'd say, for the most part, my confidence is found in my circumstances. Can I tell you, God can do far more with the 300 people that you commit to him than the 32,000 that you want to keep. I'm about to get Pentecostal in here. Watch out. God can do more with the 10% of your finances that you're going to commit to God's house than the 100% that you want to keep for yourself. God can do more with the one day a week that you commit to put his kingdom first, Sunday, than the seven days you want to keep for yourself. That as we begin to be obedient, we see something unlocked in our spirit. That we know that we're in the will of God, and so it's not based off of the fact that we've done something great. It's based off the fact that we're found in the midst of a great God who has a great plan. I think we stay obedient. The next thing I think we do is we stay with it. I think confidence is built by obedience, and it's sustained by endurance. That he could have given up after defeating a hundred and 20,000 of the 135,000 and said, this is enough, I'm going to stay right here. We did, uh, we did our best. We have their kingdom now. We don't got to worry about that other 15,000. We can leave the kings. That's fine. We can leave them there. But that's not what God called them to do. I love this. In Judges 84, it says this, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. I, I pray that that would be true of us at Journey Church. That when we're exhausted, that we keep up the pursuit. That we're not a people that gives up. Some of you are like, man, I, I tithe for like a whole week. And I did not get the financial blessings that I was expecting. Or like, I was obedient that, that one day. It didn't work out. I didn't like it. I gave it up. Like, I wish we were people that we could say of ourselves that when things get tough, that when we're exhausted, that we keep up the pursuit. I heard a story this week, it was a true story back uh, around the times of the gold rush, a man who lived kind of in our area in the northeast, uh, that he moved out west, he sold everything he had here, he bought mining equipment, he bought a piece of property, he began uh, to mine in, in that area, says that he experienced relative profit, he did it the first year, he, he didn't really strike it rich, he did it a second year, he, he, he didn't... He didn't find a bunch of money. He did it a third year. He continued to make average profits. And it says that after three years that he sells his stuff to a farm and he moves back, back east. And the farmer, he goes to a prospector and he says, can you look at my piece of property? I, I don't know what I have here. He says, what have, I, what have I bought? So the prospector looks at it and he says, believe it or not, 
if you were to mine three feet to the left, there's millions of dollars down there. If you were to mine three feet to the left, you would hit the vein of this gold mine. As if to say, had the previous owner dug a little bit deeper and a little bit longer and a little bit wider, he would have reached what he was looking for. I want to tell you today, when you feel like giving up, if you would dig a little bit deeper, if you would dig a little bit longer and dig a little bit wider, that you'll find what you're looking for, don't give up. I think that's what we can learn from Gideon's story, that while he was exhausted, that while his people were exhausted, that they kept up the pursuit. Here's what it looks like practically. Maybe some of you, you dread going to work on Monday. You dread going to work because, because it's, there's so much stress, there's so much frustration, there's so much conflict, but yet you know God has called you there, that you stay with it. That some of you, maybe you feel like God has called you to do something great in the midst of, of your family that has experienced brokenness and hopelessness, and it feels like nothing's given. That you, you stay with it. You stay obedient. That maybe you're in the midst of a situation where it feels like the best course of option is to give up, and yet you know God has brought you there. You stay with it. I believe that endurance builds confidence. Not because we're great, because we're sticking out the obedience that began our confidence. And finally, I think the last thing that we do is we stay humble. And I know this might seem counterintuitive for us to say that in order to develop confidence, we need to remain humble. But here's the truth. The reason we didn't have confidence to begin with is because we thought our confidence was found in what we accomplished instead of the accomplisher. The Bible says that he who is good to finish what he started in our lives will see it through to completion. That I believe as you begin to be obedient and I believe that as you stay with it, you will experience success and you will experience confidence. But don't ever let it get to a point where you assume you got yourself there. That we will never be a church that says, Man, it's awesome, 240 or 50 people met Jesus this year. That was because of us. As soon as we do that, you will see the downfall of Journey Church. I love this. Gideon, he does all this great stuff. He's he's called to do something awesome. He completely rescues the nation of Israel out of a situation where they should have never been rescued. And they say, Gideon, we want to make you king. Israel to this point had not had a king before. They say, we want to make you king. We want to make you our ruler. And I love this. He says in Judges 8, 23, read with me, he says, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He says, I recognize that I am not that great. In fact, the only thing that I did was do what God asked me to do, and he did the rest. If we ever get to a point where we assume that we got ourselves there, we will be found right back at step one where we have no confidence. Maybe you've gotten so good at your job that you kind of assume that you've gotten yourself to that position and all of a sudden uh, you're crucial to, to kind of the, the integral part of that company and so you can't take off on Sundays because you got yourself here and you built something great and so Sundays become kind of a, a side thought because you've got to make sure you're taking care of what you need to take care of at your job and all of a sudden God becomes second place and all of a sudden you think that you got yourself there. Maybe you've tithed for years. And you've begun to experience financial confidence and financial blessing. And you begin to forget that God is the reason that you're there in the first place. And all of a sudden, tithing, it becomes not so important. I don't ever want us to get to a place where we think we got ourselves here. Your confidence is not found in what you finish. It's found in the finisher. And maybe you would say, you know what? I don't even understand what you're talking about today because I don't know how I can have confidence in a God who hates me. I want to talk to you really quickly 
I want to let you know some things about God. God is not a boogeyman who's out to get you. He's not waiting around the corner, waiting for you to mess up so that he can, he can smite you. I think the reason that humanity begins to develop an idea of God who is angry at them is because the truth is he has every right to be. A God who is exactly like I described, he has every right to be angry with us because he is a perfect God and it does not take us long to realize that we are not a perfect people. I do this activity every single time I preach. I'm gonna keep doing it until it gets old. I need some audience participation at each of our campuses right now. Would you do me a favor and, and look to your left? Some of you forget where your left is. Go ahead, tell, tell your neighbor. Now look to your right. All right, now here's the good news. Most of the people that you just looked at, they, they're jacked up. You can laugh, that's true. You're looking at somebody like that. That the good news is that you're not in a room full of people who think that they're good. You're in a room full of people who understand that they're not and they're in need of a savior who is good. And so that creates a conflict that we are inherently the Bible says that our hearts are inherently wicked, that we desire to do things that will end in our destruction, that we are a sinful people, and yet in the midst of a good God, there's a problem because a good God can't be around a wicked people because there needs to be justice. The Bible says that God, in his rich love, came up with a backup plan, that he knew we were going to sin, he knew we didn't have what it takes, and he sent his son, Jesus. The son Jesus, he, he lived on this earth for 33 years. The Bible says in the last three years, he does uh, so many incredible miracles that we still talk about them today. That 2,000 people were crucified on a Roman cross, and yet we only talk about one. There's only one that 2 billion people across the planet have decided to make their Lord and Savior. It says that he was, he was captured. He was betrayed by one of his own because the religious people at that time, they hated him so much that they conspired to kill him. It says that they capture him in, in the, the dead of night, that they carry him off, that they torture him, that they blindfolded him, that they hit him, and they, they said, prophesy, teacher, which one of us hit you? They spat on him, and they said, prophesy, teacher, which one of us spat on you? That he was tortured over and over and over again in the place that, that we should have been, that that's what we deserved for all of our sin and all the times that we hurt others and that we hurt ourselves, that he was, he was standing in our place. It says that he was, he was put on a Roman cross, and that he was crucified. And it says in that last moment, when he breathed his last, that all the condemnation and all the guilt and all the shame, that all of that that we have built up and racked up over a lifetime, that in a moment he took it all for me. That he took it all for you. The Bible says that he, he died, he was put in a tomb. That three days after he was buried, that some of his friends went to, to put some ceremonial uh, different spices and things around his grave because it would have smelled bad and it said that when they arrived that the stone that was rolled in front of the tomb because they were so afraid of this 33 year old man that it was rolled out of the way it says that the grave that he was buried in it was empty that the guards that were sent just like the song we sang that the guards that were sent to watch in vain that says that they were actually killed on impact lying on the ground can you picture this scene he shows up and there's an empty grave and the message was that your life it was supposed to be over that's what we deserved. Not necessarily to die on a cross, but to die filled with shame and condemnation and guilt and all of the things that we had done to ourselves. And yet in the midst of that, a good and a perfect God, that he took it all. He took it all from me. The Bible says that he rose from the grave. And it says that if you would believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you, you would be saved. See, here's where the confidence comes in. 
My confidence is found in Christ because I know when I breathe my last, I don't have to be faced with an angry and a mad God who's going to look at me and pour out wrath on me. But instead, I'm going to stand behind a good and a perfect Jesus who stands in my place that when God looks at me, he doesn't see my mistakes. He doesn't see what I've done wrong. He sees a good and a perfect Jesus. And I care so much about every single person that's gathered in these rooms that I want to give you the opportunity today to respond to Jesus. So would you stand with me right now as we're gathered in Plymouth Meeting and in Limerick with nobody looking around? Just a time between you, you and God. Maybe you're here today and you say, I, I don't know this Jesus. I don't, I don't fully understand what you're talking about, but I know what it feels like to feel ashamed. I know what it feels like to make so many mistakes that it feels like uh, there's no coming back. I know what it feels like to make so many mistakes towards the people that I love, that I've burnt so many bridges that I can't go anywhere. The Bible says that Jesus, he died for us at just the right time. The Bible says that while you were at your worst, that he was at his best. The Bible says if you would confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that you would be saved. And so gathered at all of our campuses with nobody looking around right now, I want to give you a moment between you and Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to come up here and do jumping jacks. There's no Kool-Aid for you to drink. All I'm going to ask is that you put your hand in the air in a moment. And I'm not going to lie, this is a bold step. But the reason I'm going to ask you to do something bold like this is because I know the moment that you leave here, the enemy of your soul, he's going to try to rob something from you. But you're going to say, no, on May 22nd, 2016, I started over. That God gave me new life. That the Bible says that we are in his presence. We experience freedom. That some of you, you've been feeling like you've been shackled for so long and you don't know how to get free. Can I tell you, it's in the presence of Jesus. That I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him, that when you raise your hand, you're going to be able to look back at this date and say, that was the day that my life was changed forever. That's the day that my family began to change. That's the day that generations behind me began to change because Jesus did something in my heart. And so with nobody looking around, I want to give you the chance right now as you're gathered at each of our campuses. In a moment, I'm going to count to three and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm going to count to three so that you know when I'm asking you to raise your hand at each of our campuses right now. If you're listening, you'd say, I need Jesus. I don't even fully understand this. I don't fully understand God, but I know that I need a Jesus, and I know that I need a Savior like you described. I know that I need to find my confidence in Christ. I'm done trying to do it on my own. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand when I count to three. One, two, three. You say, I need Jesus. Come on, I see you there. I see you there. I see you there. Come on, church, let's celebrate. I see you there. I see you. I see you there. I see two hands, three hands over here. Come on. At our other campuses, if you would say, I need Jesus, come on. Your campus pastors are standing in the front. Church, we're only clapping because we're excited for you. We've been where you've been, and we know what it's like to experience God for the first time. If there's anybody else in our houses right now, I want to leave just another moment. If you would say, that's me. we got one hand in Plymouth meeting. Come on, let's celebrate. Is there anybody else that says, I need Jesus this morning? I want to make today my spiritual birthday. Come on, let's celebrate for the three people in Limerick. Limerick, we're celebrating with you right now. Come on. Church, let's pray together. God, we're just so thankful for what you're doing in our presence. We're thankful, God, that that you are good and we recognize that we are not. God, I pray that in the midst of a morning like this, God, that you would begin something in the hearts and lives of those people who raised their hands. God, I pray that this would be the day that they look back and say, that was the day that everything changed. God, I pray that as they leave this place that you would comfort them, that you would protect them, that you would provide, uh, Lord, your word says that you provide peace that passes all understanding. 
God, I pray in situations where there should be no peace that you would bring peace. God, I pray that you would work out the salvation that you've begun in the lives of those that are gathered with me today. And ultimately, Lord, we give you all of the glory and all of the honor and all of the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. And Journey Church said, amen. Come on, let's clap.